0: You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Romans chapter 7, we can go ahead and stand and we'll read through the chapter. thought about going easy on you guys today and just reading uh, verses 13 through 25, but um, just to get a good context of the, the section, we'll read through the whole chapter this morning. Romans chapter seven, verse one, or do you not know brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be married to another, to him who's raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, Produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate... Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Let's pray. Lord, again, what a chapter. What a section of your inspired word. And as we come to it as fallible people, finite people, people that are so easily distracted, we cry out, Lord, that the very spirit that inspired this text would be here teaching us, speaking through me, that your spirit would open our ears to hear what you would say to the churches this morning. Open our eyes to see our depravity, our sin, and how exceedingly sinful we are and how desperate we are for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, we do pray that you would guard us from error, guard me from error in teaching this text. Give us understanding and Lord, Arm us and equip us that we can fight against sin. We could fight against the flesh. And Lord, help us today just to turn to your spirit. Lord, just work in our midst. And Lord, I pray that those that are in the battle this morning, those that are struggling, Lord, that today you would bring great encouragement for them. That Romans 8.1 would come to pass. That therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Lord, let us turn to your spirit today. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Today we look at and you can be seated. Some confusing looks. Today we look at the battle that's going on against our remaining corruption. And my prayer has been in the last three weeks of mulling this text over in my mind that God would guard us from unbiblical perfectionism that is taught often within the church. And at the same time that he would guard us from an ungodly, uncharacteristic practice of perversity. In verses 13 through 25, what we're focusing on today, we see this relationship that goes on between the believer and sin. And we see that Paul just expounds in this chapter that the law, whether that be the law of Moses or whether that be the law of man or that be the law that we've created in our heart to make us righteous, that the law cannot deliver us from sin. Cannot remove the sting of sin from us. And real quick, we get into verse 13, which has been called somewhat of a bridge between verses 12 and 14, as Paul has spoken much about the law not being able to deliver us from sin, but actually, verse 5 says it arouses sin within us, or it's a bridgehead that takes occasion by the law and causes us or not causes, but sin uses the law as a bridgehead, moving us to sin. It's sin that does it, not the law. The law is good, as Paul has defended. But Paul, again, gets himself in trouble, as we've seen a lot in the last two chapters. In verse 9, you see, he says, sin has revived, and I died. In verse 10, he says, I found the commandment to bring death. Verse 11 says, sin's taking occasion by the commandment, dot, 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 and it killed me. And so the question is asked here in verse 13, another kind of antinomianism question that would want to remove the law of Moses and the good law of God from the life of the believer completely and entirely, saying that's evil within itself. So is it death to us? Is the law of Moses just Death and is it sin? And Paul just says violently and emphatically, certainly not, and then goes on to explain that sin, that it might appear sin, verse 13 says, was producing death in me, not through what is evil and not through what is death, but sin was producing death through what is good, it says. So that, so that sin through the commandments might become exceedingly sinful. The Phillips translation says, sin at the touch of the law was forced to express itself as sin. And that meant death for me. The contact of the law showed the sinful nature of sin. And so it's here that we see in in chapter 7 just how sinful sin is. It's really sinful. I'm glad I don't have a list today. How ugly is sin? It takes the righteous, good, verse 12, holy, just, good commands of God, and it uses it as a launching pad for sin, and it shows itself to be exceedingly sinful in that. Verse 14, Paul defends the law. We know that the law is spiritual. Man, sometimes we think the law is just something written on a really thin little page in our Bible, don't we? It's just kind of that section of the Bible that we skip over real fast. Boring. Let's get to, you know, judges and let's see some sword fighting and stuff, you know, some slaying. But the law is not just something fleshly, not something written on pages. It's actually something that is spiritual, And when it's spoken, the Holy Spirit uses it to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The law is spiritual. It's incredible. You know, the Lord is spirit. And those who want to worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Something radical about the spiritual realm. And we know the law is something that's spiritual. It's not sin. It's not death. And he contrasts it with himself. He says, I'm the one. I'm the one who's carnal. I'm the one who's sold under sin. As 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 says, it says, brethren, I cannot speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food for until now you were not able to receive it and even now you're still not able for you all are still carnal where there's envy, strife, division among you. Are you not carnal and behaving as mere men? Just see this tendency in Christians and especially in baby Christians to just be walking in the flesh, to be carnal like baby Christians, not receiving the deep, nourishment of the word but just wanting milk all the time like a widow tiny baby and that's just an evidence of carnality kind of in a a full state he says i'm sold under sin it's the same language used of a slave being sold in matthew chapter 18 verse 25 well we know from chapter 7 and chapter 6 excuse me the end of the chapter that We've been set free from the slavery of sin to to serve another master. What's going on here? What's Paul talking about? Is he still talking? I'm carnal again. I'm going back. I'm carnal. I'm a slave to sin. Well, we're going to look at that in depth today. Verse 15, he says, for what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Just this struggle that's happening in the author here, in the in the writer, in the person verbalizing this. You know, I want to do I I don't you know what I'm doing. I don't get it. What's happening here? It causes the world to criticize us when we hear of this struggle happening within a Christian. You know, they would say Christians don't live up to their own standard. They're hypocrites. We've all heard that, right? I don't want to be a Christian because Christians are such hypocrites. I work with so and so. He says he's a Christian. He's such a hypocrite. I want nothing to be like him. But in this chapter, in this section, verses 13 through 25, Paul has three fronts that he attacks this mentality with. First of all, he says, man, the law is spiritual, the law is good. And I have a joyful concurrence with the law, serving the law. Also in this section, Paul has an explanation for why Christians don't live up to their own standards or to the standards. The indwelling sin is a mighty power in our lives, rooted deep down within even the believer. Paul, in this section, defends his own Christian standing. I have a new nature. I'm born again. I taste for the things of God, verse 22. I joyfully concur with the law of God. But I see a different law in my members. I see a different rule happening in my body. And as, I, as I'm talking, you may just have little bits of confusion going on in your mind. You may have little bits of controversy happening in your heart, and you should. Because after all that we've talked about in, in chapter 6, death to sin, alive in Christ, free from the slavery, now serving Christ, free from the law, through the death of Christ. There seems to be controversy in what Paul would be saying in verses 13 through 25. And there is <laughs> great controversy on so many different levels first of all there's a great controversy on who I even is in this chapter who is this I or the Greek word ego fits right (laughs) who's this ego here is it a believer I want you guys to be thinking about this okay is it a believer that's struggling here Or is it an unbeliever? And Paul's just kind of speaking from the perspective of the unbeliever. Is it the unconverted Jew who's living under the law of Moses? You look at verse 1, sure could be speaking to those of you who know the law. Or is it post-conversion, struggling saints? Is Romans 7 a pre-Christian Paul? Or is it a regenerate Christian Paul describing his experience in part as he experiences it now? Is he just being very real with us in his struggle, even as an apostle? Is he explaining to us the nature of the Christian life? Should we expect the rest of our Christian existence to be characterized by this sort of severe struggle that we see in verses 13 through 25. And I'll tell you, three weeks of studying this, godly scholars line up on both sides. And there's sharp division upon this chapter's interpretation. If you read 15 different commentaries, you'll have 15 different points of view that are very good. Very good to read. Great, points i want to touch on two of the main approaches of what's going on in this section first of all the pietist approach at the end of the 17th century a group of theologians reacted in what they perceived was dead orthodoxy within the reformed churches so they thought you know as the as the thinking that this is normal christianity and the Reformed Church would preach that quite a lot. They would think that that would create complacent Christian lifestyles within the church. Oh well, just what the way it is, you know, sin's just dwelling within my members and there's nothing we can do about it. And so in this complacency, men like A.H. Frankie and J. Bangle excribed this experience to someone who would only be halfway into the true Christian experience, someone that the Holy Spirit's been speaking to, and they're you know they're almost there. The, the sin, the conviction, it, it's happening. I'm feeling it. I'm sensing it, but I'm not yet reborn. I haven't yet placed my faith in Christ. Similar concerns about this complacent Christian lifestyle led John Wesley to conclude that this depicted the experience of an unregenerate man. And for years, since the late 1600s, this has been the orthodox view in scholarship. Real quick, six six reasons. First of all, this connection between I and the flesh that we read about suggests that Paul's elaborating on the unregenerate condition in chapter 7, verse 5 of in the flesh. So I and in the flesh the sinful man no way he's saved. The word ego here throughout the passage struggles under his or her own will. And there's no mention of the Holy Spirit aiding them in the struggle. Is that a Christian? Ego here is under the power of sin. At the end of verse 14, a state from which we've been studying every believer's release, chapter 6 mostly. As this unsuccessful struggle in verses 15 through 20 show, ego is a prisoner of the law of sin, verse 23. Yet Romans 8, 2 proclaims that the believer's been set free from the law of sin and death. Paul makes it clear in his writings that Christians will struggle with sin verses 12 and 13 of chapter 6. But we don't see, you know, as these guys would argue, as the pietists would argue, just a struggle with sin, but actually what appears to be a defeat by sin. And that this is a pretty negative view of the Christian life that just can't be accommodated by Paul's theology. What do you think? Pietists? Getting some points here? (laughs) Well, many insist that the autobiography Uh, autobiographical elements here of I, 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 you can't ignore them. Paul has got to be speaking of himself. And so this must be the normal Christian experience, the second camp. First camp, the pietists. This is just some guy maybe almost saved but not quite reborn yet. Other camps, this is the normal Christian experience. None gave this position that this is The Christian experience more significantly than Luther who saw this view as a believer who is in Latin simul justus et peccator. Anybody know what that means? Me neither. (laughs) I'm glad that the definition was right behind it in the book I was reading. At the same time a justified person and a sinner. To Luther this was the normal Christian experience. So, six reasons why this would be a Christian. But first of all, why does it even matter? Why does it even matter? Well, the question is asked why people don't come to Christ for eternal joy, but rather choose everlasting destruction. Maybe you've been there or you're there right now where there's a hopelessness that is settled in your soul that says there's no hope for me. There's no hope for me. I'm so sick. I'm so twisted. Not even the greatest force in the universe can set me free from, like Paul says, this body of sin and of death. One reason for this hopelessness is what is often taught within churches it's an unbiblical perfectionism that really the moment you're justified, you've become perfect. You have white teeth, not a hint of off-white in them. You're a perfect Christian in all things pertaining to life and godliness. And if you're not, you're not really saved. And you need to come to the altar again today. You need to confess your sins, repent, and be born again today. What happens by Tuesday? What happens by Sunday afternoon for me? I know I'm the only one there. There's no categories so often within our minds to understand our failures as Christians. No way to explain what's going on in the life of sin and of failure and despair. J.I. Packer was very thankful for this book called Indwelling Sin by John Owen. And I've heard it's a very hard read. You can almost work yourself to salvation reading that book. No, not really. That's what one guy said. Indwelling Sin by John Owen. See, J.I. Packer said, I almost committed suicide. But then I read John Owen and Ryle and was encouraged by the biblical understanding of indwelling sin in the life of the Christian. So why does it matter? It matters because every single one of us in this room has struggled with sin this morning, and we've said, verse 25, oh, wretched man or woman that I am! Who will deliver me from this law of sin and death, this body of sin and death? This morning, can you believe it? While I'm preparing for church why are you in a bad mood this morning? I'm not in a bad mood. I'm thinking, I'm in a good mood. Things are going well. And then I go back and I think of the way that I communicated with my son who just wanted to play on my phone. (laughs) You devil. This is my phone. Do you pay for it? No. Do you know what kind of phone I had when I was a kid? Mounted to a wall. Made tick, tick, tick noise. That's how I played with my phone. Wretched boy. I'm preparing for Bible study. Out. No, honey, I'm in a good mood. Why? Oh, oh, maybe you are in a good mood. Why would she even say that? Oh, shoot. Don't worry. I had to humble myself with Russell. Russell. There's this hopelessness that can come into the Christian life because in a five minute's time, we've blown it, we've failed, we feel condemned, we feel worthless. And the enemy creeps in with that condemnation, shows us, tells us, you're not even saved. So who is this I? Some reasons why it it may be a regenerate person. This may be Paul speaking from himself being real with us it just got real in here you guys since we got to chapter seven paul one reason paul's take uh talking about himself here because of the i and the me and the my and the myself some 40 times in this section He's gone from the past tense in verses 7 through 12, speaking of his life before he was a Christian, to present tense verbs now, making it seem as present experiences for the apostle. As Alistair Begg says, if the first sense makes the best sense, seek no other sense, lest you come, with, come up with nonsense. Again, wishing I had some kind of whistle If the first sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Okay. And so as you read through it, it might just be me. First read through, seems like Paul, this is me, you guys. This is me. And I can say, as Rory here, definitely no better than Paul, I'm joining you in this Bible study as a present struggler with sin just like every one of you, I'm sure. Paul, secondly, joyfully concurs with the law in his inner man, ringing a bell to us about what Paul says in Ephesians 3.16, that Christians can be strengthened with might. Where? In the inner man. This joy of following the law, desiring to obey, doesn't seem to have pharisaic obligations about it, legalistic tones but rather joyful, loving desire to obey. Jesus says if we love him we'll keep his commandments. I love you Lord. I love you. I love you. I want to obey. Third thing, not wanting to do what I want and doing what I don't want. That whole thing that Paul says there. It doesn't sound like Paul's former life in Judaism where he would say in Philippians 3, blameless, I'm blameless concerning the law. Zealous for the law? Man, I was a Pharisee. You read Galatians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14, his kind of testimony of his walk before Christ. And it just doesn't seem that there was this, why do I do what I don't want to do? And why am I not doing what I want to do? That just wasn't Saul of Tarsus. Everybody hates hell. Everybody hates hell. Everybody hates the thought of fire. And an unbeliever doesn't battle against sin, hating sin. An unbeliever at best Hates the consequences of sin. Hates that they got caught. Hates that it's ruined their family, their marriage. Hates that it's hurting their community. Hates that it will end in hellfire. But there's not this in an unbeliever. Why? Why am I doing what I don't want to do? And why am I not doing what I want to do? As Galatians 5.16 describes this struggle. So I say... Live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you not, do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. This conflict, this lusting, this warring that, that is happening between the Spirit and the Spirit and the flesh Paul talks about himself in this section as a Christian in a way he wouldn't if he were a non-Christian he does a devastating self-assessment by saying nothing good dwells in me nothing good dwells in my flesh my sinful nature like Jesus says in John 3 6 flesh gives birth to more flesh another thing that points to this being a believer struggling against sin is in verses 24 through 25, the, the conclusion, which technically the whole chapter 8 is the conclusion, but the conclusion of the struggle is after Paul's mention of deliverance that is brought in Christ. And then immediately after, there's a reiteration of the divided state of the eye. With my mind, I do this. With my flesh, I'm serving sin. And finally, external of the text, but internal of Scripture, how could this possibly be a believer? We have the testimony of one of the greatest saints who was full of the Spirit and failed miserably, Peter, one of Paul's friends. Just look at three different things in Peter's life. One day... Peter gets a pat on the back. He gets a gold star by telling Jesus who he is. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but our father who's in heaven. Yeah, gold star, ding, I'm awesome. Then Jesus goes on to say, hey, by the way, guys, we're going to Jerusalem where I'm gonna be delivered up and be killed. And, Jesus, and Peter says, not so, Lord you don't need to die you don't need to die on the cross come on there's got to be another way and jesus turns on a dime and says to peter get behind me satan you are an offense to me for you are not mindful of the things of god but the things of men ouch (laughs) what about the three denials of peter Cussing at a little slave girl around a campfire. What about the hypocrisy of Peter? In Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, where Paul withstands him to his face. As Paul says, Peter was to be blamed. His hypocrisy led others into hypocrisy, stumbling even Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Can you hear Peter in almost every one of these situations? Why? Why do I say what I don't want to say, or why do I not say what I should say? Why did I do? Why did I? Oh, mm. why was I hypocrite? Why did I stumble Barnabas? Man, there's this body of sin that verse twenty-five refers to. It's not a rag or a remnant of the old man remaining. It's not merely a relic of corruption, as some have called it, but it's the whole man who is just as wicked as before, remaining attached to us. Now, the good news is that we do have a new nature. As Spurgeon says, the Holy Spirit enters into the regenerate and implants in him a new principle, a new nature, a new life. That life is a high, holy, and supernatural principle. It is, in fact, the divine nature, a ray from the great Father of lights. It is the Spirit of God dwelling in man. Thus, you see, the Christian becomes a double man, two men in one. Some have imagined the old nature is turned out of the Christian. Not so. For the word of God and experience teach the contrary. The old nature is in the Christian, unchanged, unaltered, just the same, as bad as it ever was, while the new nature in him is holy, pure, and heavenly, and hence we have to notice in me there arises a conflict between the two. Understand then that the old nature of the Christian is a body, that body of death that has in it a substance, or as Calvin puts it, a mass of corruption. It is not simply a shred or a remnant or a cloth of the old garment, but the whole of it is still there. There in its entireness, with its sad tangibility, a body of death. And why does he call it a body of death? Simply to express what an awful thing this sin is that remains in the heart. It is a body of death. An example, a metaphor, a picture that is often used when teaching this chapter would be back in ancient days whenever a tyrant was arrested or a murderer arrested they would take the body of a dead person or if you were a murderer they would take the body of the person that you murdered and they would bind this body to you, back to back, arm to arm, neck to neck, leg to leg, and you would carry around this dead person with its putrid aroma, with its decaying state, drawing attention to yourself all around until nothing remained, and it would fall from its ropes. In the same way, we have on us this putrid, corrupting body, dead, yeah, but still attached to us. The body of Adam. The flesh. Loathsome, hideous, abominable to our new life. As dead as a stinking carcass would be to a living man. Francis Corals gives the picture at the beginning of one of his emblems of a great skeleton in which the living man is encased. However, it's true to us. This old skeleton man, filthy, corrupt, and abominable, is a cage for the new principle that God has placed in our hearts. An old man that we're still attached to. An old nature, a new nature. A battle between the flesh and the spirit. And praise God, greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. And so as we look at this text, there is a qualification before studying it. There's a qualification. This text does not teach us to just make peace with sin. To just kick back on the couch and just say, oh well, I'm a sinner. Come Lord, come quickly. But rather, it prompts within us to make war with sin. Make war with sin. This man is on the war path with sin at the end of chapter 7. His new nature helps him identify this sin within him. Spurgeon said, as you read this, take the sword from the scabbard and toss the scabbard away. The fight begins. You've seen pictures of a battlefield marked with cannon craters and cannon tracks and horse prints. Remnants of the battle, bloody bandages, fragments of flesh. And we find the picture of a battlefield to be the perfect picture of a Christian's struggle with sin. Paul's eyes here and you can just go through with your pen and look at him i i i i i i i i i appear 32 times he's got an eye problem a problem with his focus worse than cataracts worse than glaucoma worse than macular degeneration he's got an eye problem i i i i i i i i i he's got an ego problem We can say, after reading this, Lego your ego. 32 times, I. One reference to the Holy Spirit in chapter 7. These verses show us what the Christian life, seeking to relate to God on the basis of legalism, on the basis of the flesh, on the basis of ego, on the basis of I. We see what that life would look like. How we, even as Christians, relate to God by the flesh so often, by rules so often, by legalism. That's always been our modus operandi. It's always been our habit. Relating to God by I. Since the garden, Adam and Eve have tried to fix themselves by I, by fig leaves. Oh, we're naked. Oh, we've got sin. Oh, we've got shame. I. I happen to have a pair of shears on me. We're going to trim this fig branch and hang it on ourselves. But when the Lord comes, He says, That's not going to do. That's not going to do. There can no be covering of sin without the shedding of blood. And the next thing we see is Adam and Eve covered in the skins of an animal. It's not about I, it's not about accomplishing it in the flesh. In Ezra, we see a great repentance take place by the people. We'll never sin again. Never, Lord. We won't do it. In fact, we're not only going to sin in those ways, we're going to create a bunch of other rules for us to do as well. But by the next book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah rebukes the people for failing to live up to the commandment and for even failing in their commandments they've added on themselves in Romans 8 we see a fresh new picture we see the spirit-empowered victory where there's no I but there's a whole lot of Holy Spirit there's a whole lot of victory there's a whole lot of relating to God not by ego but by the Holy Spirit In Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is now referred to 21 times. And the pronoun I appears only twice. And both are in reference to faith in Christ. So Romans 7. You guys are sensible people and you all have your own Bibles. Personally, I see it as a believer that is struggling with sin. But that picture of a believer, he's in a self-centered place. He's relying on his own strength, his own rules. Seeking gratification and victory through legalism. And we see that he hates something. In verse 15. For what I'm doing, I don't understand what I will to do that I do not practice, but what I hate that I do. As Psalm 97.10 says, You who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of the saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. Jude one twenty three says that we're to hate even the garment that's been defiled by the flesh. This Romans 7 guy, man, he hates sin. He hates the flesh. He says, what I want to do, I'm not doing it. And Psalm 65.3 says, iniquity has prevailed against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. Psalm 119, what an awesome chapter. Verses 1 through 6, we just read, Blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You've commanded us to keep your precepts diligently, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. Also in chapter 119, verse 32 and 40, I will run the course of your commandments, for you shall enlarge my heart. Man, what does the the believer want to do? We want to run the course of his commandments. As verse 40 says, Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. Paul, David, man, knowing the right thing to do, but not doing them. Knowing the wrong thing to do, but doing them. As Proverbs 24, 16 encourages, a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. You look at the testimony of Peter. And don't think for one second that he didn't want to stand by Jesus. That he wanted to be brave and go to the death with Jesus. And yet he cursed a little slave girl. Have the desire, what I want to do, but I'm just, I'm not doing it. Verse 16, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. The author here has an understanding that something is sin. And he desires not to do it. It shows that there's an agreement within him that the law is righteous. And that sin is evil. The New Living Translation says of verse 16, But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. Verse 17, But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. Now this is not a quintessential, the devil made me do it excuse. Paul's not trying to excuse his sin, but to recognize how powerful sin is. Verse 18, I know that within me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find wickedness that is present in us. Even Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 the Lord saw just before the flood that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent and thought of his heart was only evil continually. Some song that was on the radio today, you know, the or not today this week, you know, look into your heart when it's calling to you. Whatever, don't look to your heart. It's deceitful, it's desperately wicked, as Jeremiah says. Every intent and thought of your heart is only evil continually. That is in your flesh. Isaiah 64, 6 says, we're all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Boy, is this not opposite of what the world teaches us, that all of us are inherently good? And to fix our problems, we just need to look inside ourselves. And you're a good person. We just need to fix you a little bit. Just look inside yourself. Man, that is garbage. We've inherited Corruption. Every thought is only evil continually. Within me, nothing good dwells. For to will is present, but how to perform what is good I do not find. And you'll notice there in verse 18, and I I hope you have a pen with you, underline the word how. How to perform what is good I do not find. This is me. Lord, I know the law and I know your word and I know your standards and I know your attributes. I know that you are good and I want to do right. But then we so often ask that question, how? How do I do what is right? Can somebody tell me how? Does anybody have the answers how? Sin will tell us to use the law And to work ourselves. And give us ways to work obedience out. Just read this book. You're struggling with this or you're struggling with this. There's this new book out. It's a bestseller. Just read it and you'll be golden. Deliverance will come as you read this book. I promise. Guaranteed. And you're done with the book. Deliverance hasn't come. And there's a new bestseller out. So you go to the next book or you go to the next seminar. If I can just go to the seminar, then I will be holy, finally. That's how you do what you want to do. You muster the strength in yourself. Just finish the 12 steps. Just finish the 12 steps. Seven steps. Three steps. Just do it. Then you'll be good to go. Why does sin do this to us? Because it knows We can never do it. It knows we can never do it. So it puts us on the little hamster wheel of works. (laughs) Sorry. I never even had a hamster, but I think that happens. (laughs) Sin knows we will never succeed. And so it gives us works to do. Lying to us. Verse 19, the good that I will to do, I, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. I want to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I want to be patient with my kids. I want to care about the Great Commission and preach the gospel. I want to serve the body of Christ. But I don't do any of those things. I don't want to say these foul words. I don't want to lash out at my husband. I don't want to be critical of these people. I don't want to lust in my mind, but I do. How? How can I not do these things? Verse 20, now if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. This correlates with verse 17. The power of sin. I'm still a sinner. Sin is still in me. I find then a law, verse 21, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. Reading through Psalm 119 at the prayer meeting here a couple months ago is such a beautiful time. And one thing that you constantly read in that chapter is, is like verse 20. Where he says, my soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all time. I delight in the law. In my inner man, I love your law. I have joy in concurring with the law. But I see, verse 23, another law in my members. Warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. You might notice that there's this law he keeps referring to. I, I see a law. You might say, I see a paradox. I see two truths that are real, but don't seem like they can go together. I see this death to sin, death to the slavery, living and serving God and reckoning these things to be so. So, Yet there's still a struggle. It's a paradox. There's this law of my mind that is battling a law of my members or my body parts, my flesh. And isn't that powerful? That there's a war going on between your mind, I want to do, I I know what's right. I believe that, that God, his holiness, his purity in his Presence. There can be no evil. I want that. But there's these other things that I do. I don't want to do them. This law of my mind. You know, in Matthew 22, we see we're to love the Lord with all of our mind. In Philippians chapter 4, we see that we're to meditate and to think on things that are pure and holy and right and true and of good report. We're to think on these things. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, we're to bring every thought into captivity in the obedience of Christ. There's this battle going on though. The spirit lusting against the flesh. The struggle between the new nature, our inward man as Paul calls him, and the flesh, this law that's within our members, our body parts. And when legalism gains the stronghold in a believer's life, our flesh is completely helpless against the controlling influence of sin. Verse 24, we see the weary war here. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you guys ever feel like this? just the people going to those other churches that feel that way, not us. Let's get into chapter 8. Man, Paul did. Paul was a weary warrior. Don't make the mistake of making Paul into a god. Paul struggled with sin. Paul was just a man. Paul had the thorn in his flesh. And he wrote, hey, don't, don't be deceived. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. It's common to me, Paul. It's common to Peter. It's common to Elijah. It's common to you. But God is faithful. And he's made the way of escape. And we want to note here in verse 24 that the question is no longer how, but the question is who. Not how can I do it. It's who can deliver me. Chapter 7 shows us this dilemma of sin. And if we left it at chapter 7 and that's all we had, it would be such a bummer. Because we don't just have the dilemma of sin, but we have the solution to the dilemma. This verse leads into chapter 8. I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord, verse 27. I thank God. This is who. It's not a how, it's a who. And we know the who, we know his name, we know his birthplace, we know his heritage, his genealogy, and we know that he ever lives to be a sympathetic high priest. He was tempted in all points as we are and yet was without sin. Who can deliver us? Our high priest, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He's alive, he's alive and he's powerful. And he brings the victory. The solution is not the manual. The solution is Emmanuel, God who's with us. Paul recognizes that as long as he's in the mortal flesh, yes, there will be a battle between his new nature and his flesh. But Jesus will deliver us from the mortal body one day. One day we'll be in a new building, not a tent anymore. He'll give us this heavenly body. It'll be completely void of sin. We'll be purer than the angels in heaven. We'll have the purity of Christ. This verse brings us to chapter 8, from the self-centered life to the spirit-controlled life. 2 Timothy 4:18, Paul says, And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You know, I wish that this chapter ended with the first half of verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Yeah, USA, USA. Okay, not USA, but Jesus. It's like, yeah, we got the victory. Let's go home. Ow! But then there's the second half of verse 25. So then, With the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And we're just reminded that there is remaining corruption. Not the remnants, but the whole body of sin. And it's here where we have the paradox of the already, but not yet, of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in this room is taking place We're experiencing it. There's victory going on right now. We're being edified and equipped. There's victory that's going on as the Holy Spirit enables us to say no to sin throughout the week. And then there's the not yet. There's the not yet. The the struggle with corruption. But one day, it'll be fully right now. Right now. The crisis and the quandary of sin is shown to us in chapter 7 so that we don't fall into the lie of unbiblical perfectionism to where every time we sin, we would be condemned. I never did believe. I didn't believe rightly. I didn't believe. This time I will believe. I do believe. I'm coming forward, and now I'm saved. Hallelujah. And I messed up again. No, I must not have believed last time, but now I really believe. I really believe now. I'm coming up. Yes. Yes. For the rest of your life, you'd be going through that because you'll never be perfect. Paul wasn't perfect. He calls himself the chief of sinners in a substantial part of his ministry. Chapter 8 shows us the way out of the problem. I can't wait to get there. And while there's tactical losses, the war is won by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of these eyes that we've seen in chapter 8 are bent into seas. Seize for Christ. Let's pray and have the worship team come forward. Whether you are coming into this room today an unsaved person, unregenerate, not born again yet, You've never placed your faith in Jesus and that you've rested in him for his perfection, his power, his might, his work so that that would all become your perfection by grace. And if you come here today and that's you or whether you come here today and and you are 30 years, 50 years in the faith, And you can sympathize, you can understand, you relate to this section of scripture. Today, we can just cry out, confessing our sin, recognizing, Lord, I see in your word that this is sin. These things that I've done, these things that I've said, these places I've gone, these things that I haven't done, that you've asked me to do, sin in my life. And Lord, I repent today. And I cry out for you to conform me to be like you and to work in me holiness. And these last two weeks have been some tearful times of studying and good times of conversation. Just with people struggling with sin. And just today, perhaps the Lord's shown you, you've been trying to do it on your own. You've had an eye problem. But right now, we want to respond to his word. And if you're here today and the Lord's shown you your eye problem, I just encourage you right now to lay down yourself and just by faith, cry out for the power of the Spirit. Cry out for just a renewed vigor and ability to rest and lean on the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're here today and you've never, you you just can't relate to this chapter, you can't relate to this guy, you've never had this problem of not doing what you want to do and wanting what you don't want to, man, you know you're in a, a scary place. Perhaps grace is not in your heart. You're in a scary place if you have no quandary in your spirit against sin. And right now, I just, I pray for you and I I even ask you to ask the Lord to show you your sin, to show you your failure. Got to share the gospel with a guy this week who says, I, I love the Bible, I want to read more of the Bible, but I think I'm actually I feel that I've had a vision, a revelation from a spirit that I'm actually one out of a million that doesn't need to be saved through Jesus. And I'm an elite person who will have a special place in heaven. But you know what? I think that's more of us in this room than we think. You think that you are elite, you think that you are good in yourself, and that the blood that was shed, that was nice of Jesus, but it wasn't for you. You don't need it, you've got your own good works to get you there. Man, that is a lie from Satan. And I just encourage you right now, without giving it any more thought, you repent of that thought. You repent of the thought that you can work it out on your own. That's the eye syndrome. And you cry out right now, the Holy Spirit, to indwell you. To take out your heart of stone and to replace it with the heart of flesh. cry out for the blood of Jesus to atone for your sins, to cleanse you, to take off your robes of filth and to clothe you in robes of